You're listening to Breaking the Bottle Legacy with Molly Watts, Episode 8. Hi, I'm Molly. After a lifetime living under the influence of family alcohol abuse, spending more than 30 years worrying about alcohol and my own drinking, believing I had an unbreakable daily drinking habit, I changed my relationship with alcohol forever. If you want to change your drinking habits, then Breaking the Bottle Legacy is for you. My goal is to help you create a peaceful relationship with alcohol, past, present, and future. Each week, I'll focus on real science and using your own brain to change your relationship with alcohol. Nothing has gone wrong. You're not broken. You're not sick. It's not your genes. And creating peace is possible. I'm here to help you do it. Let's start now. Well, hello and welcome or welcome back to Breaking the Bottle Legacy. I am your host, Molly Watts, and I am coming to you from an absolutely gorgeous Oregon, if I must say. It is January 20th. Happy Inauguration Day to everyone in the United States. Definitely hope and inspirational if you watched it today. Gotta say, it was pretty amazing. Uh, Amanda Gorman, look her up. Wow. So it's January 20th. I, I should say, by the way, I am 20 days into dryuary. It has been going awesome. And two years ago, I would have never imagined that I could do a full month off of drinking alcohol. I know that sounds crazy. No, probably doesn't to some of you, or to many of you, you, you are right in there with me, you could not imagine taking this kind of a break. And it's been awesome. I'm loving it. And it's been easy. And so I've been sharing a little bit of that journey in my Facebook group, Breaking the Bottle Legacy. If you have not already joined, I invite you to go to Facebook, search for Breaking the Bottle Legacy, the group, and please join. Um, so today on the podcast, I am speaking with one of my experts that I have connected with. And this is a, a preeminent expert in the area of alcohol research. I'm speaking with Dr. David Nutt. Dr. Nutt is a psychiatrist. He is also a professor of neuropsychopharmacology at the Imperial College of London. He has researched, his research has been focused on psychopharmacology and the study of effects of drugs on the brain. Um, and from a perspective of both drug treatments and how neurology works and why people use and become addicted to drugs. He has a career that has spanned uh, nearly 50 years. And so um, he is literally one of the top 0.1% researchers in the world on this subject. So to say that I am uh, thrilled to speak to him is an understatement. He has also recently published a new book called Drink? Question mark, the Science of Alcohol and Your Health. And uh, this book has been instrumental for me in understanding and developing my new relationship with alcohol, and I highly recommend it. I, of course, will be linked in the show notes. So here is my conversation with Dr. David Nutt. Hello, David. Thank you so much for joining me. I just gave a brief introduction into the podcast, giving all of your titles and information, and uh, but really excited to have you here and to share, most importantly, your most recent publication, Drink, the New Science of Alcohol, and uh, want to share with our with people 
kind of your background and what led you to write this book? I know I've said, I know that you have an extensive background in both research and uh, addiction expertise, but tell us a little bit about why writing the book now and what your goal is for sharing this information in this way. Oh, thanks, Molly. It's a real pleasure to be on this podcast with you. And uh, thank you for uh, having read the book. Which, yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope a lot of people will do. Uh, so I'm a doctor. I qualified in 1975. So I've been practicing medicine for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be fair to say that there's not a day gone by in my medical practice when I haven't come across alcohol in some way or other. Mm -hmm. as being either a problem or the cause of a medical illness or the cause of some sort of family dispute. Medicine and alcohol are so intrinsically entwined that it's really, it's impossible to be a doctor and not be influenced by alcohol. But then, of course, I also drink. I drink alcohol. In fact, one of the things people find most amusing about me is that I also run a wine bar. My, right. my daughter and I are a wine <laughs> right. bar. And then people say, this doesn't make any sense at all. You're dealing with all the problems of alcohol, and yet you're adding to them by having a wine bar. And, uh, and writing the book was really trying to pull together all these contradictions, because alcohol is both the most wonderful, intoxicating, pleasurable drink that many of us enjoy, and particularly in relationships, and it can be one of the most deadly poisons, mm -hmm. uh, but it can be both. And to understand alcohol and particularly to understand your own relation to it, you have to think quite carefully about what you're doing, what you're getting from it, how it's affecting you, how it's affecting your family. And this book really is just a guide to all the modern science we know about this. Yeah, I, I I love that. In the intro to my podcast, I talk about the fact that I will be using science to share this information. I think science is just key to understanding what we do with our bodies and 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 really the relationship we have with alcohol. It's so important. One of the things that um, I appreciated, and I told I mentioned this to you before we jumped on here, is the fact the book is written without question from a scientific perspective. You are very clear on the fact that and have said this over the course of your your um, career, that alcohol is a drug and is something that you need to uh, consider as a drug when you are deciding how much to drink, when to drink, if you'll drink. And um, I appreciate it in the introduction of your book, you actually said that in the course of writing this, you, you do own a wine bar, but you're not a teetotaler, but you're also not a heavy drinker. You also used it as an opportunity to examine your own relationship with alcohol. And I think that's really the driving point of what I believe about, uh, you know, creating a peaceful relationship with alcohol is using science and then, but also weighing that with the results that you have in your life. Absolutely. I mean, there's a one simple message from the book. It's think about drink right <laughs> it, it, I, you know I, I, and that's one of the things that actually came to me as i wrote the book i wrote the book because i've researched alcohol for 40 years and i wanted to sort of share with the world my fascination with it and the insights we've gotten and uh, you know and the remarkable negative effects it can have and mm -hmm. how the drinks industry has kind of helped us be blinkered to the consequences of drinking but during the writing it, I started to think, you know, well, what about, you know, why do I drink? And and and, and I think, that, as I say, even to someone like me who is 
kind of a world expert. Right. I, 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 I still have bad habits when it comes to drinking. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and if the, the bottom line is, I don't think you should ever have a mouthful of alcohol that isn't going to give you something useful. Mm. Pleasure, relaxation, sociability. Drinking out of habit is the reason most people get into trouble. Yeah. You know, I've shared a little bit of my life and experience with you, but in, in correspondence, but I grew up as a child of an alcoholic, became an adult child of an alcoholic. My mother continued drinking for really most of my life and she ultimately succumbed to her alcoholism. And it was a, a very uh, oxymoron, much like you, you consider yourself, you know, I mean, you're an expert. I considered myself somebody that was had such radical negative experiences with alcohol. You would think that it would be therefore that I would simply not drink at all. Right. I mean, in some ways that mental, it, to me, I developed a habit that I would have considered to be oxymoronic, just didn't yes. make sense to me. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time uh, researching that, uh, that whole thing and researching why people develop these habits and, um, and much to, like you said in your book, and, and the book is so well written. And I will, of course, link this folks for you to find it and to pick up your own copy of it. Um, I enjoyed, I told David that I enjoyed the, the audio version just as much It's the reason that I felt uh, uh, comfortable connecting with him in the first place. So if you want to hear his brilliant uh, British accent, you can listen to the book as well. But um, what I loved about it is it, 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 it does come from a scientific background and there's clearly your expertise and all of the information that's available. You share that, but you also don't hit us over the head with it. Don't shame people with it. And you really tried to make it common sense for people and um, sensible when they're reviewing everything that, you know, goes into the decision to drink or not drink. Well, that's right, because there is a lot to know. And the last thing you want is are people just give up because it's too difficult. So I've tried to make it straightforward. I try to emphasize the key points. And, and, and in, in, in essence, there are, you know, what you need to do, the first thing you need to know is work out how much you're drinking. And, right. and the second is why, why each drink is drunk. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as I say, if you can get rid of all the drinks that, don't actually serve the purpose for which they're being drunk you're actually going to make some significant impact on your life because one of the most remarkable and, and the most one of the reasons alcohol is so destructive is that the relationship between consumption and harm is not linear yeah. it goes up as a curve yep and so doubling consumption generally quadruples four times more harm mm -hmm. and so you can rapidly, if you, you know, drink, say, over, you know, uh, more than, say, a bottle of wine or, or half a bottle of spirits a day, you're getting into levels of harm, which are taking decades off your life. Mm -hmm. And I think at the very least, people should know that because a lot of people don't. No, <laughs> and it's, yeah. yeah, it's very, you, you say this in the book as well. I mean, most of the time, there's a lot of science and a lot of research behind the harmful side effects of alcohol. And in general, the medical community and the scientific community recognize the harms that alcohol, you know, g gives in the world. But as a, but culture and society, on the other hand, doesn't seem to have caught up with this information. And while 
you know, I think it's important and I agree with you, the mission should be to make sure that people really understand the risks and the, 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 the risk reward analysis, right? So there has to be a, uh, a consideration for harm reduction, for physical health and harm, for your social health. And, you know, even I, I say also for your financial health, because it's not oh, inexpensive. Indeed. So, you know, you need to, <laughs> these are all things that should go into consideration, but it's, it is taking it into that conscious brain and making a decision about when you are drinking, as opposed to the unconscious brain where those habits reside that you've, you know, you've told your brain. And that's really, um, I guess, going to take us into another point I want to talk with you about, which is genetics, because I know in the book, you mentioned that one of your interests in alcoholism was spurred by a very old study on um, the genetics of alcoholism. Of course, this is, a, this is a, you know, dear interest to me just because of my background. Um, but tell me, because I, I have my own view on this, but I would like to hear your what scientists showed you and kind of your own interpretation of genetics and alcoholism. Right. Well, very briefly, yeah, uh, the study that got me inspired was the one you mentioned. It was a it was called the Danish Adoption Study. Mm-hmm. And I was training. I was I was a doc, I was a medical student. I was in my second year of medicine, um, nineteen seventy three, and I was doing psychiatry. And I was reading books about psychiatry, and I read about this study. This was a, a study done in Denmark. In Denmark, they have. Um, Basically, they collect data on everyone. All, all the population agree to have all their data collected and be linked mm-hmm. uh, so that they can ask questions like, what is the right, relationship right. between drinking and family life or school performance or whatever? And this adoption study, which was actually done by a couple of Americans, one of them was Collinger, who I, I got to meet later when I came to America to, to be at the Alcohol Institute in Washington. And, and they basically said a simple question. We can monitor the outcomes of drinking at least in terms of health harms in anyone in Denmark. So let's look at men with alcoholism who had children and look at the children who were adopted out mm-hmm. of the families with the alcoholic men. And let's see how they did in compare, comparison with children who stayed in the same families as the alcoholic men. And they show that the boys adopted out had the same likelihood of becoming alcoholic as the ones that stayed in the families. And that was strong evidence that there was some inherited predisposition mm-hmm. to alcohol, because even if you're in a teetotal family, you right. still had the same risk of being an alcoholic when you grew up. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful, powerful proof, really, that there is a genetic risk of alcoholism. Right. But the thing with genetic risk is that if that person never drank alcohol, right, they're predisposed. But if they never drank alcohol, they'd never become an alcoholic. It's not the same as a, you know, something that physically manifests itself. The Absolutely right. That's right. And in fact, that's interesting. See, what's interesting about your, your story, which I, I already just heard, but also it, it reflects very powerfully. So I had a, one of my best ever PhD students was from Northern Ireland. And he would work, he'd work with us for about three months. It was Christmas, Christmas party. And I offered him a drink and he said, I don't drink. And I said, oh, you don't drink? You're from Ireland. And he said, I took the pledge. I said, what's the pledge? He said, when I was 12, I took the pledge. I would never drink. And I haven't drunk. And then I researched that. And it was clear that, that there was such a high prevalence of alcoholism in, in Northern Ireland. 
that 12-year-olds were given a choice to basically say they would never drink in order to protect them. Because wow. to, and that, that avoiding, in an almost religious way, avoiding alcohol worked, worked brilliantly for him. Mm-hmm. But of course, not everyone did take the pledge. Sure. And some people who took the pledge still gave it up. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting to me because I, you know, watched, as I said, I watched my mother and she went through three different rehabs. She, she was in a nine month rehabilitation program when she was 77 years old for wow. the reluctant to recover. So, um, yeah, uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty strong willed, um, alcoholic, um, mm-hmm. physically, dep- but, but you know, what's interesting. And I know you've, you, you talk about this in the book as well, the difference between psychological addiction versus physiological dependence. Obviously in a nine month rehab program, my mom came out and she was no longer physically dependent on alcohol. She drank three weeks later. So there is a psychological part there that she could never overcome. And that's that psychological part that really drives me towards um, helping people and talking to people, because I really truly believe that for many people and for many people who are perhaps drinking more than they should, or is healthy for them given guidelines like the CDC or the UK's, you know, drink um, Mm -hmm. recommendations, people that are using more alcohol than what would be considered moderate, et cetera. um, A lot of them are doing so out of habit and are not necessarily physically dependent. And really it's just a mind. It's, it's changing your mindset. Much like you said, taking a pledge is, is just another form of creating a different mindset around alcohol. And for me, I developed a, you know, a 30 year, pretty consistent daily drinking habit. And just like you said, it was not mindful at all. It was just, it was what I did. And I trained my own brain to believe that I, that alcohol was the answer to daily stress or whatever. And I no longer, it just, it, there was no cognition about it. Um, But at the same time, it was, I had all this anxiety about it. So it was very interesting because I, because I grew up in an alcoholic home. So I worried about it all the time, but I didn't feel, I felt completely unable to, unable to break it, the habit until I got brought up and really got well-trained in terms of my own using the prefrontal cortex and really training myself in a different way to see alcohol in a different way. So it's uh, interesting. I think but that's kind of where I, where I land on it is genetics may be there, but I think it's, I think ultimately we have the power to control. Most of us have the power to control our ability, our, our, our relationship with alcohol, obviously people that are physically dependent. And I know you mentioned this in your book, you know, you can't, if you're, if you have developed a physical dependence on it, you're going to need to do that work first. Now, you're absolutely right. We all have that power. Um, some of us have less power than others. Uh, and of course, the problem with alcohol is that the, the more you drink, the more it <laughs> yeah. dissolves the less power that you power. Have. <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's why it's such an easy drug to get addicted to, because it, it not only increases habits, but it does remove that self-awareness and also that self-control. Yeah. Do you agree with the, the, I, or the sentiment that um, some of the people that, you know, are really moving towards drinking no alcohol at all are really uh, looking at alcohol and very much saying that they, they want to bring the, the thinking to their conscious thoughts, as opposed to all the subconscious that runs in the background, 
fueled by society, fueled by the, you know, the drug itself, but bringing it into your conscious awareness kind of gives you a, a power over that, being able to see it for what it is. And I think that, you know, part of your book I really enjoyed is you do not say, you know, there's, you can never drink again. And I think that some, for some people that are, that are trying to work on this relationship, but are really thinking, I don't want to be completely never, ever be able to drink again. Some of the programs that, that focus totally on sobriety and, and abstinence scare them so much that they don't want to make a change at all. Well, precisely. If you can't be perfect, then, you know, then you, <laughs> let's just go to hell with drinking. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's one, that's absolutely one, one, one problem with that kind of approach. Uh, but the other is just a lot of people, I think probably you're, you're an example. They, it's, a lot of it is very, very subconscious and habitual at a, at a subconscious level. And until you've thought about why you're drinking, there is no obvious reason to change. And that, and that I think, is the key thing. So one of the messages in the book is, uh, I think there are some key numbers that everyone needs to have in their life. You know, you need to know your weight and mm -hmm. what you'd like it to be. You need to know your waist size, which you do, and you, and what that would you'd like that to be, and your blood pressure and your cholesterol. And I think how much you drink should be one of those numbers that mm -hmm. is central to you. And and just as with blood pressure and cholesterol and weight, you should generally always be trying to reduce it. And even reducing it a little will have a very significant effect, not just on your physical health, but on your mental health. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I, like I said, one of the reasons that I really love this book, and one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with you is because there is, there are people that tell us that, you know, moderation isn't possible, that it's not, you know, that it's, it's either abstinence or you're, you're, you're out of luck. And I just don't agree with that. And I, and sure, and I know that you would say that there are some people that are that that seriously cannot drink and they should not drink. And, but you, you, in your book, you outline kind of what, some of the reasons that, that you might fall into that category, things that might, uh, types of drinkers, things that you, that you might want to consider if you're really, truly having continued problems with alcohol, you may be a candidate for an alcohol-free life and it might be your best choice, but still for most of us, we have the power to control that relationship and to create the relationship that we want. And I agree with you full heartedly. You should know how much you're drinking. You should keep a number. You should have an idea. It's not like, it doesn't have to be some hugely taxing, <laughs> um, troublesome problem. You know, it just is, it is what it is. Just like you would, just like you keep track of your blood pressure, just like you keep track of your, your weight waistline. This is another area where you can just simply manage that relationship in a very calm and peaceful way yes and the other the other kind of insight I came to when I started thinking through what messages I would give to people uh, was about who you drink with and, I, and it occurred to me and, and you know I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this that if you never drink alone <laughs> you're probably gonna do yourself a lot of good yeah for two reasons, because alcohol is the social drink and it's great for drinking with friends. Uh, so if that's all you did, if you get the maximum benefits from alcohol, uh, and, and as we I know in my clinical work, people who drink alone, there's no constraints. And sitting in front of the TV, you can knock back 
two bottles of wine over a, a course of an afternoon and evening without even getting drunk. And that is really damaging to your body. So, mm-hmm. so if you ever drank socially, that would be, a, if that was a rule for everyone, that would reduce the harms of alcohol enormously. Yeah, no, I agree with you that I 100% agree with that. I also agree with, and one of the things that's in the book, and I think this is just, I don't know if this is in the the UK's recommendations specifically, but it might be, is two alcohol-free days a week. And I think that's something that um, everyone should be striving towards is, you know, I didn't used to think that way at all. I didn't see much problem with drinking three to four, you know, two, three, four drinks a night, I never got altered. So I sort of thought, oh, therefore, I do not have a problem. Um, But I didn't, I hadn't done a cost, you know, a risk rewards analysis, I really hadn't gotten I knew that I lived in a constant state of anxiety. And I kind of just accepted that as a default that was acceptable, (laughs) and did not realize. Um, And and right now, actually, I'm in the midst of dryuary, my first my first ever one going through a full month of ta- yeah, taking a full month off of, of alcohol. So I'm really kind of excited to see uh, how this translates moving forward, because there's been a lot of research that doing this actually, again, and probably like you said, with writing your book, you, it caused you to reevaluate. This has been yeah. causing me to evaluate my own relationship. So um, well, you're two thirds of the way through. Well, done. I know, I know, I know. And it, you know, Strangely enough, if you had asked me two years ago about the prospect of doing this, I would have told you you're absolutely crazy. There's no way I'm going to give up beer for two for a month. Um, and it's been absolutely uh, no problem whatsoever. Again, just changing my mindset around alcohol um, over the last two years and the work I've been doing. And it's been no struggle at all. And actually, like I said, I'm really noticing. And this is, an, again, a part of everything you talk about, really noticing what is happening without it, you know? So that's a really positive side as well. Well, there are two things, two things to say there. The, the first is it, it, this is staggering statistic from um, the uh, Britain sort of leading liver alcohol expert in his uh, liver, um, liver clinic in Southampton University. A third of the people coming in with alcoholic liver damage had never ever even considered themselves being drunk. <laughs> they just right. drank every day, and right. they would alcohol changed. You know, they were tolerant. They were never got drunk. They were going, and they right. just were just slowly pickling their liver, which is kind of that's kind of chilling, isn't it? The way it hides alcohol manages to sort of I, uh, hide away, or yeah, you know, hide. It blinkers you to its what it's doing. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually had, that's, I understand that completely because I had a gallstone, had to have a, a scan. And I remember the scan showing that I had, um, I don't know if it was mild or moderate, one of the two words, uh, fatty liver. And I yeah. was like, what? Like, I was literally shocked even though, I mean, and that was a couple of years ago now, but really good news on that folks is that if you are participating in dry or doing anything like this, even those, just like I mentioned, taking two days off a week, anything where, and just like David has said too, anytime where you are reducing, you're actually giving your liver a break, taking time off and it, it helps your liver. Your liver is a great, very restorative organ. So you can really improve your liver health <laughs> just by, you know, making these even small changes. Exactly. 
Well, David, I know I could talk to you uh, for hours, I'm sure, about all of this. I don't know that you'd enjoy that, but I would love it, but I won't keep you because I know that your time is precious and I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, discuss this with me. I cannot wait to have people find more copies of Drink, the New Science of Alcohol. It's it's Drink question mark really is the is 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 you know exactly. So um, and I just hate again appreciate you taking the time. Molly, it's been a pleasure, and do keep up your good work yourself. All right. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Bottle Legacy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you change your drinking habits and to create a peaceful relationship with alcohol. Take something that you learned in today's episode and apply it to your life this week. Transformation is possible. You have the power to change your relationship with alcohol now. For more information, please visit me at www.mollywatts.com.